Welcome back to your toddler's favorite podcast. While on a play date, Beethoven walks into a bar. We know this because we surveyed 100 kids ages 1 to 2, and anytime they didn't respond to the question, what's your favorite podcast, we checked the default choice of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie, the Kansas City Symphony's Education Director. I'm Jason Sieber, the Associate Conductor. And I'm Mike Gordon, Principal Flute of the Kansas City Symphony. Well, we are thrilled to welcome several outstanding guest conductors this season to the Kansas City Symphony's Classical Series, and we also hope to have many, if not all of them, here on the podcast so you can get to know more about them off the podium and find out about the programs they will lead. Today, we get a chance to sit down with Johannes Debus, who will be leading us in a Thanksgiving weekend program of Barber, Beethoven, and Schumann. That's right, Mike. Maestro Debus was last here in Kansas City in June of 2018 when he led a program which included Beethoven's Emperor Concerto with pianist Martin Helmchen, and it also featured some of the really terrific instrumental music from Wagner's epic Ring Cycle. It was a real treat to see him work with the symphony that week, especially in his wheelhouse of opera music. You know, Johannes is the music director of the Canadian Opera Company, which he's been at that post for about 12 years, I believe now. And in addition, he conducts many of the world's leading orchestras. He also has led productions at nearly all of the major opera companies here in North America and abroad. Welcome to the program, Johannes Debus. Glad to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, Stephanie and Jason and Michael. Sorry, uh, it's, it's, it's great to, to see you, to hear you, to uh, connect with you after yeah, quite some time. It's great to see you again. Yeah, we're super excited to, uh, to welcome you back here in Kansas City uh, this fall. And I'm, I'm looking forward to getting to know you uh, through this podcast. But before we get to that, can you tell us a little bit about the program that you've put together for your upcoming weekend here in Kansas City? Um, yeah, so the program, as you mentioned, Barber... Um, Beethoven and Schumann. So with Beethoven and Schumann, um, obviously there are two composers on the program that somehow I share a little bit uh, origins with uh, because it's sort of the, let's call it the Austro-German uh, background we might share. And the barber um, was an idea because I believe you have something called Curtis Weeks mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. where you connect with um, artists that uh, come from this institution or have a, have some kind of affiliation with uh, this famous uh, institution in Philadelphia. And um, our pianist, as far as I know, is also an alumni of the Curtis Institute. So there are a number of links uh, within the program. Of course, those are, well, I would say... Um, hidden links that are not not uh, necessarily obvious to uh, the concert goer or the listener. But I think there's a beautiful variety in in the program. And um, therefore, I'm I'm very much looking forward to um, bring all three pieces uh, together with the wonderful musicians of the Kansas uh, City Symphony to life. The Beethoven Piano Concerto, of course, that's a that's a staple for some people, maybe including myself. It's it's maybe on the top ten of concertos, um, mm. piano concertos. The Schumann is another staple, I would say, a glorious piece. 
depicting well not only sort of the the landscape um, uh, along the River Rhine in in Germany, but also evoking the feelings, the emotions that one can have. I would say encountering a landscape that is utterly impressive, mm-hmm. mm. um, which is something that can relate to any place on planet Earth, and you know that makes this this piece not just a geographically very uh, specific piece. It is a piece that has a universal appeal through that. I I would say, and the barber maybe uh, a bit sort of the the unknown egg in the basket but it's a it's a great piece um of course everyone knows his adagio but i think it's great to explore also some other other parts of this composer's oeuvre so we're talking of course about barber's second essay correct and beethoven's fourth piano concerto you led the fifth one uh the emperor last time you were here this is the fourth concerto with eric lou all right then yeah so, so we have another we have another link or sort yeah. of a bit of a thread there's a kind of uh, continuation of of that work which is which is wonderful well we'll have to invite you back three more times so you can do beethoven <laughs> one two and three as well <laughs> And we're also talking about Schumann's Rhenish Symphony. And I want to ask you a question because as a conductor, this is something that we always deal with when conducting Schumann. You know, Schumann, brilliant German composer. Um, Really terrific, both writing for the piano and for orchestra. Of course, this is his third symphony, the Rhenish, and you mentioned some of the inspiration for it. If there's one thing that Schumann is often criticized for, it's not being the most brilliant orchestrator that he wrote very thick orchestrations, very dense, and sometimes it's hard to hear to get clarity of all the different lines that are going on. What do you say to the naysayers that don't believe in Schumann's ability as an orchestral composer, and how do you deal with that on the podium with, with balance issues and that, those kinds of things when dealing with his orchestration? Well, I would say his orchestration is part of his musical thinking or his musical language. And I would say that even in his piano music, you find some similarities in terms of the density of texture. It's often very polyphonic and I don't want to say thick, but rich and full. And so are his instrumentations. There are two aspects. I mean, one thing is that you have the ability to organize it in a way that it might not just sound like a... I don't know, a ratatouille or, you know, uh, (laughs) just sort of an undefined mix of things. So that's something I, as the conductor, have to have to figure out how I balance the orchestra um, and how I make sure that those voices that carry the main musical material um, are being heard. A second aspect, of course, is that the instruments at Schumann's time were maybe slightly different than what we have in our days. And one could, one could discuss, you know, whether this was one reason why Schumann said, well, you know, with the instruments I have and their natural transparency, I can write the way I write. And it does not have the effect that maybe a not so good performance of the, the, the Schumann symphonies in our time might show, 
that it becomes just thick and uh, undefined. Uh, for me, there is this incredible richness of texture that, that I find um, so wonderful. And in particular, in the Rhenish, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's glorious, it's grand, it's, uh, it's joyful, it's euphoric. Uh, after all, it's an E-flat major. It has this, yeah, grand and, and, and euphoric, very vital um, appeal. And, of course, one other thing, You know, Wagner's Rheingold starts in E-flat. Hmm. Maybe it's the key of the river <laughs> we are uh, we're encountering here. There's a majestic energy in it. And I think yeah. that uh, not only the, the, the music, the melodies, uh, etc., that Schumann found for this symphony um, reflects that, but maybe also the way he uh, puts it into an orchestral... What do you call it? Like like a, a suit or a, you know a costume. Hmm. And Smetna's Moldau is in E minor, so maybe E or E flat. Just E in general. That's the key of the river, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I like it. Well, the 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 German the Rhine, you know, the Rhine for sure. The Rhine sounds in E flat major. Mm -hmm. There's no doubt about it. And to be honest, um, or not honest, to to give you one more piece of information. Um, I was born and I grew up in a town called Speyer, and this is right at the River Rhine. It's further south than where Schumann um, got his impressions from, but it's very, very close to where allegedly the Rheingold might be found. Hmm. In fact, just a bit north of my hometown, there is the, um, the old city of Worms, and Worms was sort of the where the it was where the um the Giebichungen, which is one <laughs> one family uh where they they lived and um so there's a lot of you know lots of connections nice and all sort of uh wrapped up in the idea of uh, maybe german mythology or um fairy tale stories bottom line, German romanticism. I think that's the key point here. So I, I'm really curious to have you talk today a bit about how you straddle these worlds of opera and concert music. And it's interesting that you maybe intentionally or unwittingly set this up. But, uh, you know, for, for our listeners, my impression has always been, you know, there are a lot of conductors who conduct only opera and, you know, barely ever do concerts. And there are a lot of conductors who primarily do concerts and maybe never any opera. And, and there are certainly many who do both, but I think it's, it's more unusual. And it's, for me as a player, it seems clear to me that the conductors who do both really have a unique skill set that I always assume would contribute something really important and special to the concert stage. And I'm, I'm always surprised a little bit when a very fine opera conductor gets sort of pigeonholed just as an opera conductor. Maybe that's just their personal preference and that's why it's that way. But, but I wonder if you, if you would talk about that a little bit, because you know, you're talking about balance and creating transparency in the Schumann and, you know, in Kansas city, we play for the opera as well. So we, we spend a lot of time in the pit and, and from my experience, opera is all about, creating transparency, you know, 
um, balancing the voices with the orchestra. I, I, I just think it's, it's interesting when you can bring that background to the concert stage. You know, Michael, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, when I started as a young teenager to uh, fantasize about uh, learning the, the, the craft of conducting, I had so much trouble with opera. I couldn't get it. I did not understand what this was about, that there would be um, someone standing on a stage and singing and singing, and then this person might be uh, might have been killed or whatever, or is dying, and the person is going on for like hours still singing. And I was like, what? is it so unrealistic? What, what is that? It's so over the top, what is that? And it took me, uh, it took me a number of years until my jaw really dropped and I probably intuitively understood what it means when, uh, words and drama, uh, meet music or the other way around music meets drama. And when a drama is told through music and how, well, how huge and bigger than life this can be and how wonderful this can be and how incredible opera as an art form can be when all the various elements, all those various art forms that are assembled in this one art form uh, align. Okay, so this was sort of my my way into opera. And then, of course, obviously, I got uh, very involved in opera and I did... Uh, more opera than any concert uh, uh, conducting. Um, but now I think, or starting already years ago, uh, it was important to me to also uh, complement my operatic experience and work with symphonic work. Because the work on the podium in a concert hall, I think is a bit different Opera is a collaborative art form. You have a stage director, you have a light designer, you have costume designers, etc., etc. And um, when it comes to symphonic work, you might be, I mean, of course, it's still collaborative because, you know, the conductor needs the musicians. Uh, the musicians not always need the conductor. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, there's also a form of collaboration. Yet, in terms of the storytelling it is, in a way, the conductor's responsibility to put the lights into the right position, to uh, stage it the right way, to find the right costumes, you know. So this is all um, then in my portfolio. And as, it, as I believe it is important for any symphony orchestra to play opera, I think it's important for any opera orchestra to also play symphonic work. And the same applies to, uh, to me as a conductor. So I'm, I'm very, very happy that, uh, you know, this, this is possible and that I'm not just in one drawer and just doing um, opera. The good thing about opera is, and especially for me sort of growing up in the uh, German, old German tradition of, you know, the Kapellmeister tradition, where you might start at an opera house as a rehearsal pianist, and, so, and then you work your way um, up the ladder, you learn a lot of very basic things. And sometimes, unfortunately, uh, it has to be said, making music, performing music, or preparing music for a performance 
starts with some basic things. Uh, you might call it uh, louder, softer, faster, slower. <laughs> you you're, you're kind of set, a, set a, a framework like a cross. You, you kind of organize the horizontal and the, the vertical in a way. And that can be utterly simple and in a way non-artistic. But when you're able to, to, to organize that, you might have a good chance to then, in a performance, let the horses fly. Why I'm saying that? Because I think opera um, teaches you to be pragmatic in that way. In opera, of course, because you're dealing with larger distances, you're dealing with people who are on a stage doing sometimes the craziest things, you know, singing, I don't know, uh, an aria doing a headstand or, uh, or I don't know what, or, or salto mortale and then uh, the uh, spin off a brilliant virtuosic cadenza of some sorts. So these people on that stage, they're incredibly busy and, and occupied with so many things. And you have to help them. You have to organ, organize things. You are uh, maybe in the pit uh, here and there a bit more police cop than you want to be <laughs> or traffic cop. But it's, it's part of that, of that deal. And it's, it's good because it, it teaches you at least that element. Maybe on the symphonic or in the concert platform or the concert stage, you can right away focus on slightly different things. To find that out is sometimes not always easy. Uh, sometimes it's a bit painful if you, let's say you, as, as a conductor who is used to conduct concerts, you come to an opera house, you might feel frustrated because certain things do not immediately work and you do maybe not completely understand that, uh, well, yes, you, you just have to be clear for, for a moment to sort things out with, you know, with those people on stage. And the other way around, you, you might uh, uh, be maybe too much focused on organizing things as a, a conductor used to conduct opera when you come to the concert platform. So, so this is really amusing to me. I, I like. I just want to interrupt you for a second and and sure. and highlight this idea because as a as a player, either you know on stage or in the pit, it, it's fascinating for you to articulate in this way. You know the way you feel in the pit versus on stage because we certainly observe, or at least I do. One of the things that I appreciate about conductors who you know conduct a lot of opera, and it's not it's. Not that it's not sometimes true of all conductors or any conductor, but there's a certain pragmatic approach, which is, I think, what you're getting at. That, you know, louder, softer, faster, slower, just a quick, simple instruction. We don't have time to talk about, you know, uh, second flute. I need you to imagine that there's a purple flower in the valley somewhere and, <laughs> you know, shorter, go, you know, <laughs> there's too much other stuff to do. But you're right on... On the concert stage, you know, that can be super helpful. And then at other times, you know, I feel like, well, actually, I, I don't know that I, I need something more than just the pragmatic approach on the stage. So it's really interesting to hear you articulate as a conductor this thing that, that I feel I've experienced, you know, most, most of my life. And I always wonder if the conductor has the self-awareness to know that that's going on. But I, I always appreciate just faster 
slower, louder, softer. And occasionally I'm also able to process longer, shorter, but that's about it. Six <laughs> instructions yeah. is all I can handle. I, I mean, um, <laughs> there's one other aspect uh, that I'm interested in. Of course, I, I think we, we agree that at the end of the day, um, music is not just about louder, softer, longer, shorter, um, louder, and so on. Um, there's something we cannot explain maybe properly with words that we have to, um, to discover the, um, I don't know, the metaphysical aspect of it. Uh, the, well, yeah, the emotional aspects of it. And I mean, in opera or in any text based music, we have sort of the benefit of a storyline that the creators, the composers or librettists um, have put in front of us. Of course, for me, this is something uh, that also applies to any non-verbal uh, uh, based or non-word based music. I think in any symphony, there's a form of storyline, there's a form of drama, there's a form of conflict, solving the conflict or whatever in it. Or there might be, you might be able to uh, analyze it or see it just through the lens of maybe the architecture, the formal aspects of a work. But, you know, let's say in a classical symphony, uh, you have a first subject, you might, you might, you have a second subject, which most of the time is somewhat contrasting the, the first subject, right? And there already, there is some form of juxtaposition, some form of drama, some form of storytelling. If you are able as a conductor to somehow find the key to the musicians of an orchestra, and you feel that, you know, you have the, a certain connection with these musicians um, and the musicians might trust you as you trust the musicians, then I believe it's wonderful. And it's, it's, it's also maybe even necessary to add to the, what I call the framework, the softer, louder, faster, slower, shorter, longer, to add your ideas, your imagination, your vision of the piece, of the various situations throughout the piece. And of course, it is great if you can do that with very little words. If you might have just one word that describes it, how, how you sense it, how you feel it. And hopefully it's a word that the musicians can really hang on to and can associate uh, certain things with, and then let their own imagination go wild. Um, mm. That's for me sort of the ideal case, you know, that, that you have both, you have this framework, uh, and then you, you, f you fill it with um, maybe not necessarily the, the purple flower in the, in, in the valley <laughs> and these things. Um, the more specific you can be, the better it is. But for example, um, uh, Anoncourt, Nicolas Anoncourt, who was a very influential uh, conductor in the way how 
we interpret, how we read music, I would say, at least in the, you know, in the last century, at the beginning of the 21st century. He was very influential and, and game-changing that way. And I have seen some of his descriptions, let's say Mavlast, uh, Smetana, um, or even a piece like uh, Beethoven V, where he sent out to the musicians like uh, almost like a, a little, not a novel, but sort of a storybook and what for him every section means. And he is so clear and so specific and also mindful about the amount of words that the musicians I spoke to that have worked with him were saying, well, you couldn't play it another way because it was so, you know, it was so poignant. It was so clear um, what he wanted to, or how he read that piece, you know, that, that's kind of, I don't know, that's, that's what, um, what makes it uh, really interesting. Or, you know, if you listen to, I don't know, rehearsals of really great, great conductors, I would say there's always a mix between thinking about sort of technical aspects that might solve the problem, or should we rather say, you know, they like a doctor, they make the diagnosis and then they have the right prescription. Mm -hmm. And the right prescription can be the, the technical aspect, the shorter, et cetera, et cetera, longer, blah, blah, blah. Or it is just this one word, let's say, you know, amoroso. Or, well, here the vibrato is not just, I don't know, with, with your finger, it really involves even your guts. Oh, I don't know. I'm you know, curious. Yeah. yeah, I'm curious, you know, when you talk about this framework and you talk about maximizing, you know, rehearsal time and trying to figure out and solve problems and diagnose things, um, if that, if your approach to it differs from when you're working with either your, you know, your resident orchestra or, op, you know, uh, opera company or versus, um, you know, when you're coming here to Kansas City and you were here three years ago, how your approach to the rehearsal process might differ from a, a known entity to a less known entity? Um, yeah, of course, it's, um, it's, it's different. If you uh, know the musicians very well, or you know them a little bit, or you don't know them at all, you, you know, with the musicians that you have worked for quite some time, you might know better sort of what the next step is you want to take together. Um, I think you set also, you set a bit different goals. The musicians also know you a bit better because, you know, every conductor, the physicality, there's a physical aspect, of course, involved here too. Uh, we are all trying to communicate something through gestures and maybe a bit of mimic, but um, everyone is different of us. And so the musicians have to also then always kind of well, adapt or, 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 um, yeah, adapt to something, something different, something new. Now, the musicians that know a conductor, um, because they have worked a lot together, they, they can read maybe those gestures. They, they know even the, the micro gestures, what, what it, what it means, right? So, um, that's already, 
out of the way, so to speak. Um, of course, it's, it's good if uh, even with a, an orchestra that you don't know, uh, that your gestures are convincingly enough that um, the musicians have no hard time to decipher what you're doing. But uh, <laughs> just an, an anecdote, I remember uh, the famous French conductor Georges Prêtre uh, coming to the Staatskapelle Dresden and apparently, at least that's what the anecdote says, musicians went to the orchestra management um, in the intermission of the first rehearsal saying, we don't know what to do. We can't read. We have no idea what he's doing there <laughs> um, with his hands. The gestures are unclear to us. It's like hieroglyphs. That, happen that happens at every break of every rehearsal I do at the Kansas City Symphony, actually. So I know oh, exactly what you're Jason. talking about. Sorry, continue. I think that's a good sign, Jason. Go on on this path. <laughs> because, because I have to, I have to tell you the end of this story. Yeah. So the man, the management said, um, you know, be patient, you know, don't relax, relax, uh, keep, keep calm and carry on. Um, <laughs> and okay. So the musicians did, and of course they more and more then got attuned to what was happening. And you probably have all seen some uh, footage of Prêtre conducting. Of course, it's not his goal to deliver sort of the most uh, uh, well-executed, clear 4-4 uh, bar or something. Um, it's all about shaping the music and sort of, yeah, shaping, phrasing, uh, forming this material. Um, and at the end, it was apparently one of the most electrifying concerts they probably have played. Yeah, because uh, at some point they probably just trusted and understood the musical ideas behind and that he was only sort of expressing musical ideas. Yeah. Mm. You bring up a lot of good points there. And you know, anytime I've gone to guest conduct a new orchestra, you're exactly right. I would say the first five to 10, maybe even 15 minutes, there's a lot of just guessing and figuring each other out. You're figuring out the musicians and how they respond to what you're doing as a conductor on the podium and vice versa. Mm -hmm. And so it can be easy to think, oh, this isn't going so well, maybe the first five minutes or so. And then as soon as they figure out how to respond to your gestures, to your facial expressions, et cetera, it clicks. And then when you come back to that orchestra a second or third time that, you know, the honeymoon's over and you've figured each other out and, and now you can, you know, have a, a really cohesive, great relationship together. So it is an interesting dynamic between an orchestra and a conductor the first yes, time, especially. Indeed. Yeah. yeah. You know, and I think that also translates to working with soloists as well. Mm. So a soloist that you might have either, you know, whether it's an operatic soloist or, an instrumentalist, um, you know, like like we're coming back to, and, and we're going to be working, um, coming up with Eric. Uh, no, who are we working with? Eric Lou, yeah. You know, so I assume some of that exists as well, you know, kind of getting to know the soloist and how, you know, you want to respect how they want to want the concerto to go, but, you know, you also have a job to do there. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, unless you, um, you know the soloist uh, really well, and you have established, so to speak, a, a common artistic relationship in a way, and you share then probably certain artistic goals and ideas. Um, but let's say you meet a soloist for the first time. Um, 
then I think as a conductor, your responsibility is to to follow the soloist's ideas and the person's choices. We all <laughs> we all probably remember this famous story, uh, Leonard Bernstein, Glenn Gould, mm-hmm. with the uh, the first um, <laughs> piano concerto by Brahms um, and Bernstein before they started the performance, before anyone was on stage, got on stage and told the audience that he's in complete disagreement with the soloist's uh, perspective um, and interpretation of that score. However, as he so deeply respects this artist, he is willing to go on this journey together with the artist and to do his best to make it happen for for the for the soloist at that time it was seen a little bit as a i don't know as a scandal almost or like a mm. like a huge controversy but i must say in hindsight i thought it was one of the most maybe one of the most honest and um and wonderful moments in in sort of performing uh history of the the last uh, decades um because it was not just saying, oh, I disagree. No, it was saying, I'm respecting this person, this artist and and his artistry so much that I'm willing to make this uh, this step and get out, get completely out of my own comfort zone. Of course, you, you might you might argue there, there are limits and and there are also many stories where maybe the meeting of uh, a soloist, a conductor, and orchestra did not really gel, didn't work. Okay, um, it's fine. You don't have to, it, it does not have to uh, work with everyone necessarily. And I think then it's also good to say, sorry, it's not my cup of tea and I can't bend myself that far. Okay, that's good. But in general, I think you know, listen first as a conductor, listen to what the soloist has to offer, to what the soloist's vision of the piece is, and then see how you can bring that together with your own ideas. And it's sometimes surprising, it's sometimes surprising how it is possible to, um, on the one hand, serve the soloist's cause so to speak, and on the other hand, still bring in your own idea, vision of the of the piece, and somehow, you know, bring that together. Yeah, I think it's that's really interesting, um, and this relationship between conductor and soloist. So I do, um, I work in the symphony's administration, but I do all of our education work. So, you know, I work with our resident conductor, associate conductor. Um, primarily in my position. So I've, through that, I've sat through many um, auditions for assistant and associate conductors. And what I love, Mm. and I find so revealing on those auditions, and I love, you know, here in Kansas City, we do it as we have, um, as part of the audition, you know, some solo work with a, a soloist from the orchestra. Yeah. But I think it's, it's really revealing to see not only how, uh, you know, you see how the conductor interacts with the soloist, but it gives our, you know, the entire orchestra a chance to kind of really um, see a different side. And, you know, it, it, just the way that that a conductor approaches that relationship, I think, is super revealing in the way that they, 
you know, will interact with, you know, the orchestra and the art as a whole. Mm, absolutely. I, I think as a, as a musician too, uh, you know, it's, it's worth it to point out, you know, we get, we get used to having this relatively um, intimate experience of making music, you know, with strangers uh, a lot of the time. Uh, and that's, that's a normal thing for us, but actually, you know, as we, as we talk about it in this way, it's kind of weird. And, you know, one of the, one of the things that I'm really looking forward to this season, you know, for instance, you've, you've been here, Johannes, a few times, I'm sure, or maybe once, once. it just seemed like a, it seemed like a few times. (laughs) (laughs) So we, we, you know, we might've exchanged a pleasantry, you know, in the hallway or something, but you know, we don't really get to talk. I don't get to know who you are besides whatever our interaction is, uh, you know, while you're on the podium. So for me personally, in this, this season where we're having so many guests, you know, having the opportunity to, to talk to you and some of them on this podcast is a real privilege, but normally, you know, sit down, I don't know anything about you. And like you say, all I can see, all I, I learn about you is from your gestures and, you know, whatever, mm. whatever comments you might make. And that's, that's kind of unnatural uh, in a certain mm. way. And I do think, no matter who the conductor is, no matter who the other musicians are around you, of course, in an orchestra, we pretty much all know each other. If you play in a gig orchestra, it's kind of kind of the same feeling. You don't know, you can't anticipate what the people around you are going to do. And as a, a guest conductor somewhere, it takes time before you can anticipate what the conductor needs. And I think it's, um, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about. But I, I want to shift gears a little bit, um, talk about some things that have been happening uh, more recently through this pandemic period, because it's been an incredibly challenging time for all musicians. And I have to imagine a uniquely difficult time as a conductor, because of course, you know, orchestras haven't really been able to assemble in their normal way. And you all typically don't make sounds at a concert, although maybe Maybe you play an instrument as well that you that you perform. But uh, I was interested to learn that the Canadian Opera Company is actually going to be streaming all of their performances now. And I think it's so interesting um, here at the Kansas City Symphony. We've started experimenting with streaming concerts last season, you know, out of necessity. I think this pandemic has pushed us all much more rapidly forward in this direction. So I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that and how, how your opera company is using technology and the internet, um, both during the pandemic and, and beyond to kind of reshape how we, um, how we deliver this art form. Yeah. So I think, I think we all agree that, uh, nothing sort of replaces the life experience. And I can tell you from, recent experiences that I've made, um, there is such an incredible difference between things that are happening in the digital realm and things that are happening in a, well, what is the, what is the antonym or what is the opposite? Is it analog? No, it's like in person, you know, unless we all turn into androids, (laughs) as long as we're human beings, I think, the the human touch and the interaction with human beings um, being together in person in the flesh in one place is you can't mimic that there's something specially vibrant um, 
And therefore, well, I'm advocating for it, not just because I'm sort of I'm trained in that uh, in that way and I have made the experience that way, um, but because I, I'm convinced that it is essential for human life, for the human soul, for the human spirit. It is an essential experience. And it's also an essential experience. Uh, maybe Glenn Gould would contest this um, because he went at some point just into the studio. Um, so where he performed without an audience. But I think that a real performance can only happen if you have sort of... Um, what I call a sender, someone who sends something out. It might be an orchestra, it might be one musician, whatever, and someone who receives it, right? And this exchange is, for me, crucial. Okay, having said this, of course, we're not living in the 19th century. We're living in the 21st century and uh, the digital realm, the, the, the world is... Uh, functioning in so many ways now in, in that kind of, in that kind of realm. So it's, it's, I would say a necessity also for the arts to explore that and to look into it and to see in which ways, uh, the modern technology can be, uh, helpful and beneficial for what we do. And that can happen, of course, on many levels. It can happen on the level of sort of the, uh, the distribution of what you produce. That sounds, no, sounds awful, I know, but uh, I don't have better terms right now. Mm. Um, and of course, you have with the internet, you have the, the, the potential, you have the opportunity to go far beyond your normal audience you have to figure out how you set this up, of course, and that's it's it's tricky because you also enter um, a, a realm that is highly competitive. You know, suddenly there are I don't know thousands of of, of players who are putting their stuff out there, um, but still you have uh, the the possibility to reach out. Mm, why? So that that's distribution on one level. On a second level, you could also, and maybe you should, think about how modern technology uh, is maybe propelling the art form further. Of course, we have seen uh, experiments with VR, with uh, uh, AR. We have seen lots of um, experiments with um, projections of all kinds and so on and so forth. Um, the the technology is is in many ways very advanced to just give you one example i recently heard that they are working on sound systems that would give you sort of more and more so the idea even if you're at home to be in a real concert hall you get sort of a three-dimensional audio experience so to speak so there's a lot a lot going on and this this audio is only it's only one um, very small aspect i i guess yeah, I, I I believe that um, that we have to we have to look into it, we have to discuss it, and we have to see how we can use it, uh, how we can use it in our creation, how we use it for 
all kinds of outreach and distribution. Um, and how actually the modern technology might shape all our minds and beings. Because that has an impact. If we understand that, if we learn how that shapes um, us, we learn a lot about our audiences and how they feel and tick and how they are or where they are and where we might actually find them and, and, and bring them and uh, being able to tell them, okay, you know, here, this is, this is one thing of our life experience, modern life experience. Now, look into this. We have something to offer that is quite incredible. It's different. It might be different, but, you know, have a listen and so on. So um, because I my feeling is that the gap between sort of our sector, our world and what's happening outside of our doors has become wider over the last decades. And we were even if we, you know, we, we did our outreach and these things, but still we kind of lived a bit in, in the ivory tower. And um, we're sort of replicating a model that might have been invented already in the 19th century, or at least at the end of the 19th century. And um, not too much has changed. But now, also because of very, very crucial changes uh, uh, on the social political level, we are kind of experiencing this wake-up call in a way, all right? So uh, the internet revolution in a way uh, is, is immensely powerful. Um, and then the changes in our, uh, in our communities, in our cultural life in general is, uh, is very powerful. Um, and it's, it is extremely exciting as it can be maybe here they're challenging, of course, um, because we have to change and change is always tricky, you know, um, but it's possible. And at the end of those journeys, this, I'm, I'm certain, I'm absolutely certain at the end of this journey, uh, we will find something incredibly meaningful and beautiful and new and fresh and inspiring. Yeah. I don't know. How did I get there? How did I get there? That was, I, I think I was digressing. No, no, not at all. Not at all. Now you got my, you got my full, uh, I don't know. What, what do you call that? Like my, my mission statement <laughs> I love or whatever. It. <laughs> I love it. Well, it's well put. Oh it's well God. put. And like you said, nothing can replace the live experience. And I know we're all looking forward to getting back to that soon, but if we can reach new audiences <clears> and like you said, break down some of those barriers between what happens inside our performance spaces and outside in our communities. I think that's a really good thing. And I'm glad that many arts organizations, including the Canadian Opera Company and the Kansas City Symphony are doing just that. Oh yeah, right. We, we, we were talking about what we are doing at the CUC. And, and yes, in fact, um, maybe I should g give a little bit um, background yeah. on that. So during the pandemic, we were able to get um, with uh, governmental support, um, 
sort of a system into our um, opera house, into the Four Seasons Center of the Performing Arts um, that would allow us to uh, film and potentially also to live stream. So we are now sort of set up uh, in, in that regard, which is great, which is wonderful. And since uh, it was so, or it is still so uncertain, um, you know, whether the, the government might uh, decide another lockdown or whatever with all the different waves um, going up and down, we decided to start the season, this new season, with a, a digital version of it, which means we are going to be in the hall. Uh, we start on Friday and we will film various projects to be then distributed through our um, channels. We also made the decision to say we don't want to uh, protect the, the content with a paywall mm -hmm. or something like that. We want to share it uh, with everyone. Everyone who wants to, to see it can sign up and has access to it, um, which I think is, is great. Um, and hopefully, hopefully many, many people will, um, will make use of, the, of, of this, this offer. I'm sure they will. And I know that the three of us will definitely check it out as well. And we'll include the link uh, in our show notes to sure. the free digital Canadian opera company subscription in case people want to check out what Maestro Debus is doing, all these great projects, both operas and I saw that you're doing Mozart Requiem and various other things as, as well. So it should be really great. Yeah, the, the Requiem actually will be kind of a special project um, because we wanted to, in, in, in light of the, the pandemic and all the tragedies that uh, this has brought, the daily news kind of deliver all the numbers and statistics and all of that. And we forget a bit about the sort of the the people, the faces that are actually dealing with that crisis in many ways. It might be people who have lost loved ones. And as we know, when someone dies of COVID, the person dies alone. Um, there might be a Zoom call that one can set up before uh, the person leaves this, uh, this world. But can you imagine how tragic and hard that is? There are people researching, or they researched, there are people working on the front lines um, and so on. So the Mozart Requiem is kind of dedicated to those and the, the extra sort of footage will reflect on this. And on top of it, it should be sort of um, a way to humanize things and to hopefully also give us a bit of a, I don't know, a, a positive outlook. We shall see. I think that's all wonderful. And I think that's a great way of, of honoring all, all those things that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, well, Johannes, we always ask our guests on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar two important questions that we like to leave with. What is your favorite drink? And if you were going to share this drink with Beethoven in a bar or a beer garden, uh, what would you want to ask Mr. Ludwig von Beethoven? Favorite drink? Espresso Romano. That means Ooh. espresso with... Uh, a slice of lemon. Mm. Um, recently, I don't know, rediscovered. It's good in the morning. It's great. Mm. Huh. And it's, it's, it's fairly simple. Um, it's nothing too sophisticated. Maybe 
throughout the day uh, the choice of pr preferred drink might change <laughs> and if we reach if we reach the end of the day um i don't know it might be uh, it might be a whiskey sour mm. could be um and with beethoven i could imagine that i could sit down with him uh, with an espresso uh, romano um might be possible um What would I ask him? I might ask him, what next? Question mark. Mm. Mm. In terms of what is his vision? What is his utopia for the rest of the 21st century? Mm. Because one thing that um, strikes me about Beethoven always, it is not that you hardly see uh, any painting or yeah painting uh, of his where he is not sort of looking very <laughs> grimly at you <laughs> um but what strikes me about him is that in every work i believe of his there is always the quest for something utopian something that is so idealistic that we have to strive for it even if we don't know if we will reach it. But it's the famous, famous thing that he wrote down himself in, uh, no, which number is it? In the string quartet, I think it's number 14, where you find muss es sein? Does it have to be? Question mark. And then a bit later, es muss sein. A, a very definitive answer, it has to be. And it's this categorical force that is so captivating and arresting in a way. And it is this, this sense and the boldness and the courage to... Um, Well, to not just ask for the, the basic things in daily life, he always goes far beyond that. Um, and he always points towards something that I can only describe as cosmic or utopian or visionary. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I think his music will always have this element of being radical being uncompromising and being modern in the sense that it always feels new and somewhat unheard, somehow surprising, unexpected, unconventional. So therefore, my question would be, what next? I like that. I love that. And... Who knows what his answer would be? I, I, I like to speculate about it. He might not give me an answer in words. Maybe he would scribble something down on, on a piece of paper in this, uh, in this bar where we sit or in this cafe where we, where we would sit, some notes. And maybe he would say, this has to be played on 
An Apple? No, no, no. Sorry,、uh, I didn't want to make any product placement here. This <laughs> has to be. This has to be played on a on a Giga computer of some sort,、uh, <laughs> and it has to、I、be played. It. it has to be played on planet Mars.、Mm. We could accomplish that. Okay. Very forward thinking. Here we go. I like、here、it. I like, I like it. it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, Johannes, we before we wrap it up, one last thing we like to do is to provide some recommended listening for our listeners. So, is there anything you've been listening to that you'd like to recommend our listeners check out, or anything new, anything you know that's kind of come back to you? Okay, here's my list <laughs>、uh, for the for the essay number two. It's the recording with Leonard Slatkin.、Mm. Uh, I think it's the St. Louis Symphony. I think you're right. Okay.、Yeah. For Beethoven number four, I mean, oh god, the lists are endless.、Hmm. But I just discovered one recording, incredible! It blows your mind. It's Leon Fleischer, Otto Klemperer.、Mm. It, I believe, it's a live recording from Cologne, nineteen fifty-six or something. I mean, Fleischer recorded it with Cell later,、mm. uh, right. which is also like benchmark recordings, no question. But this one with Klempera, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs>、um, and then Schumann、uh, again. The discography is is endless, and you know, de- depending on the, I don't know, the mood of the day or whatever, you can go from a- a- any great conductor recorded it.、Uh, um, but I discovered. I think a beautiful recording,、uh, Philip Herrewege and his Orchestre des、uh, de、Champs Elysees, and、uh, yeah, they of course on their period instruments they might manage very well the、uh, the question we discussed at the very beginning. Yeah. <laughs>、um, but I guess also in terms of the、uh, the spirit behind it,、uh, you get a good idea, a good sense of.、Um, What that music is about, I believe. Wonderful. So we will include links to those、um, those recordings in our show notes, as well as、um, a link to the Canadian Opera Company subscription to your free、um, streaming service this season. And、uh, I I look forward to checking all of these out. Well, thank you, Johannes, so much.、Uh, this has been such a terrific conversation, and、uh, like I said, a true pleasure for me. Personally,、uh, to get to have a chat before we work together for the second time, <laughs>、uh, <laughs> Michael, I want I wanted to ask you whether when you said a few times whether this is a good sign that oh this you know, is that great a few times oh or if if it's a bad sign you know no like, it's oh this guy no、again. it's it's terrific <laughs> if I think it's been a few times that's great the ones that have been here you know seventeen times that I don't ever want to see again like oh that guy came once it was oh. Oh, goodness.、Oh. Let me tell you a, qu- a quick, quick story, Johannes. There was a, there was about three years ago that Mike brought up to me something. He asked me a question about something that happened in a performance, and he said, "Did you hear about this?" And I said, "Yes, I was conducting that program." He had forgotten that I was the one on the podium. It's like, yes, I, I knew that that happened. This can happen. So I don't, I don't remember yesterday very clearly. So I, you know. In other in other words, you should feel flattered that he thinks that you were exactly. Here he doesn't even know when no, I'm up I'm, there. So you should feel flattered that I remembered you were here at all. I mean, that's a miracle in and of itself. <laughs> <Yeah> . <laughs> 
let alone more times than you were. It's awesome. <laughs> well, it's a real pleasure, and I uh, I truly look forward to spending uh, our American Thanksgiving weekend uh, with you. Oh yeah, yeah. So um, get ready, get ready for some turkey. I don't know how it compares to Canadian Great. Thanksgiving. <laughs> not no, that much. No. no, unfortunately not. But it's a beautiful tradition. Um, and I'm pretty sure that the, the turkey, uh, in, in Kansas city is, oh, we have smoked we turkey. Have great, it's terrific. We have smoked. great smoked barbecued turkey. It'll be Ooh. terrific. Yeah. Ooh. So everyone, <laughs> uh, smoke your turkey and then, uh, come to our concerts. They're going to be <laughs> November 26th through 28th at Heltzberg hall. Again, the program is Samuel Barber's second essay, Beethoven's fourth piano concerto with Eric Liu, uh, as soloist. And of course, Schumann's third symphony, the Rhenish, and you can get tickets as always at kcsymphony.org. Thank you again so much for joining us. Thanks, Johannes. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to talk to you, to see you all. Stay healthy, stay happy. Absolutely. And I'm lo- <laughs> looking forward to the end of November. We are too. Thank you. Awesome. Next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, it's all about that bass. The Kansas City Symphony is blessed with one of the very best bass sections in the country. And we're going to have the chance to sit down and talk with one of the members of the section, Caleb Quillen. We're going to learn about the solid foundation upon which orchestral sound is built. We'll continue the lively debate between German bows and French bows. And we'll have a spin on bar talk and bass fashion. Plus, the team introduces a new segment called Top 5. All that and more next time on Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. <laughs>